In today's episode, I'm going to interview Miriam Hamm. Miriam is the campus coordinator for education for Central Queensland University, CQU, here in Cairns. And she's also doing research into community development and social innovation around Australia and overseas, particularly in Nepal. Miriam's a wife and mother of three teenagers, and I had a chat with her in a local cafe here in Cairns. So uh, settle in, listen up, and learn from Miriam Hamm in this episode. Thank you, Miriam, for joining me today. We'll get into your roles and your leadership context in a little bit later. But first, could you tell us when you first realised that you were a leader? Uh, so my first notion for myself is that I might be a leader was my mother, uh, who used to call me bossy. And then obviously at school on report cards, frequently, um, I think the teachers were really just saying I was bossy, but they used the word leadership. And I think that was kind of the first idea that I had some sort of skills in that area or that that had been attached to me as a person. Um, but for me, um, kind of the moment uh, that I you know, became aware of the fact that I had um, some decisions and uh, made some purposeful decisions around my leadership um, was on school camp because naturally as a teacher you end up as, as a bit of a leader, uh, dragging kids all over the countryside. Um, but on this particular camp I'd, I'd been a number of times and previously uh, getting the students to grow and develop had always been about me and what I could, um, how I could mentor them and get them through that journey. And on this particular camp I sat back and it just occurred to me that if I let them fail on their own um, they would actually learn from that activity without my involvement. So yeah, that real light bulb movement of leadership is actually less about me and more about them and that I can, um, you know, facilitate from afar rather than have to hover and, and control. So yeah, that was probably. Wow. Mm. I reckon a lot of leaders get a lot further into life before they realise that, that leadership's not about them, but about others. How did that shift what you were doing? So it, it made you give them more opportunities to fail and give them more space? Were there other things that shifted in how you led? Definitely um, less, again, like, like I said, less control, uh, less trying to produce an outcome that I wanted because um, obviously if you're going to lead, you sometimes have a goal in mind, but essentially that's more about you and about what, what you think is success. Uh, whereas if you leave it a little bit to, for people to learn their own journeys, they may not learn what you had hoped but they're learning what they need for their future um, because they're a different personality or at a different stage of life or, yes, yeah, so I think um, it's also, um, it's about opening up what you determine as learning or success or development. So, yeah, which is a little bit scary for a control freak. <laughs> yes, it, it would be scary. You're really, you know, you're leaving the end results in a lot of ways up to the collaborative process and up to mm -hmm. them. Do you have a, a leadership framework or, or an understanding of what leadership means to you? Yeah, and I think um, it's important for me to say that I don't see my framework as the only way to lead. I'm very aware that the way I lead is very different to other way other people lead. There's weaknesses about my leadership style that, you know, if everyone in the world was like me, lots of stuff wouldn't get done um, and lots of things wouldn't happen. So, but to answer your actual question, um, my leadership style is kind of foundational on two elements. One is organisational and one is inspirational. Um, so from an organisational point of view, I am um, quite regimented in you know, covering all bases. I know what's happening, I know when it's happening. I'm very good at the admin side, paperwork, communication, everybody knows what's happening. Um, where that really comes into play for me is when I take teams overseas. 
So I have a fairly good knack of being able to allow people to feel quite safe because they feel like I can answer any question um, or I have a joking way of, you know, say, well, we'll discover that when we're over there, but it's okay because I've got this contact and I've got this phone number and, you know, that sort of side of it. Um, more and more, the other side of my leadership, which is developing, because um, I haven't always been aware of it, I don't think. It's always been there, but I didn't value it as much. Um, and now I'm becoming more aware of it, is the inspirational and the motivational side. Uh, and funnily enough, I was just talking to a friend of mine and he was talking about those teachers that inspire. And I was like, oh, that's the feedback I get a lot. So that's, I think, where that's coming from to go, oh, I'm actually an inspiration. And it's this open-ended, I'm doing this thing, I'll tell you about it, and then you take from it what you want. And if I'm able to, then maybe you will be able to as well. And so it's this idea of getting people to think beyond the boundaries that they've set for themselves or what they see as possible to go, oh, wow, maybe I could contribute in this way, in this area, different to the way Miriam's doing it, but, you know, maybe this could work. So, mm. yeah. So with that, that organisational side and that inspirational side, you kind of provide the, the framework with which someone will operate or, or try and fail. And with inspiration, you provide them with the direction or the motivation. Yeah. yeah I can yeah. see those two working together really well. Yeah. Tell us what that looks like then for you on the ground. So you, you have a couple of, uh, of roles which are connected. So tell us about the university and then how that's led you overseas. Yeah, okay. So as an academic, you have... Um, so I'm a lecturer of education. And I have a teaching role, but then I also have a research role. And the research role is also connected with a service role. So there's those two kind of elements. On the ground, day to day, is uh, my students at university. So I am um, involved in lecturing them, obviously improving and increasing their knowledge and their development as teachers. So that's kind of half of my job. The second half that I do, of course, is the research. And I've actually ended up researching overseas. It's always been a passion of mine, so it's not that surprising for anybody who's known me for a long time. Um, mainly in the area of um, teaching teachers professional development, but that has actually led me to community development and particularly the empowerment of marginalised women in Nepal. So Nepal is my focus country at the moment. I've worked in Africa, I've worked in Thailand as well, um, but Nepal is my, kind of my focus. Um, and that's translating slowly into an Indigenous context at the moment here in the far north, um, being in Cairns, being connected to some communities as well. So, okay. yeah, they're my two kind of roles. What are the similarities and differences like between Nepal and Indigenous Australia? Yeah, it's a really good question um, because I struggled to find it for a little while, but my topic of research is empowerment. So it's this idea of questioning systems, questioning barriers, um, and looking at skills and assets that people have and they don't know that they have, and then working to um, increase their understanding and the way that they could use those skills to um, do what they want to do. Again, not what I want them to do, but where do they want to head? So that whole agency, um, it's a term that we use a lot in the academic world is um, you know, people making choice and being able to make a choice. And when you don't even see that's possible, you can't make a choice because you don't even see the choices there. So obviously that translates to an Indigenous community, um, particularly around um, cultural knowledge at the moment. So my thesis topic was cultural identity. And so obviously that translates into any context. So yeah, that's kind of the link. 
that yeah. I've made there. Okay. Tell us what your work looks like on the ground in Nepal. So you fly in by yourself or with a team? Where do you go? What do you do? Different times, different ways of going. Um, so the... the well, I started by just doing research and we're doing teacher training. So that was working with large groups of teachers um, and getting them to a point where they would be okay with knowing their students' names. I know it sounds ridiculous, but you know we're dealing with a, a country that has very, very um, a wide distance between the relationships between teachers and students of authoritarian, and they're being asked to change by the international policy, and they're struggling with that because again, their identity says I need to be like this to be a teacher if I'm going to be respected, and it's about showing them that there are other ways to be respected through relationship. That's kind of my thing. Um, so that's one side of what I do in Nepal. The other part, the community development part, um, I've en ended up connecting with a an NGO, a grassroots NGO, grassroots simply means they, it, it is Nepali based and Nepali run, uh, called Seven Women. And so that's run by a little dynamo called Anita, who uh, is into challenging every um, inequitable practice <laughs> in her nation uh, for marginalized women. So women who have disabilities, uh, women who are just being women, <laughs> uh, poor women, um, so again, who don't have choice and she assist them to uh, identify the skills that they have, provide training for skills where they don't have, and then empower them to make choice, to make their lives and their families' lives better. So I, my role in that is, again, documenting what she does, assisting her to understand why she does what she does, walking the journey with her uh, to, to approve to her and give her evidence for um, some of the applications that she makes to the government as to why she should be given you know, money or uh, power because she is being successful. So it's actually helping her gather evidence um, and also then to give ideas as well to say, hey, have you thought about this or this is possible or making connections with other groups in Nepal. What do you notice from her? What are you learning from her? Yeah, so she's very different to me and I'm appreciating learning her style. Um, so as a female in Australia, um, we, we come from a nation where we have as many rights um, as males. So it was not a problem for me to finish school, go to university, become a teacher, rise up the ranks, finish master's degrees, finish PhDs and, you know, be able to do and make decisions the way I want so not the same for Anita very very different actually so when I've listened to her life journey her leadership style is pure guts and pure bravery and pure fighting against the system um, I've tried to to, be, to kind of uncover with her where that came from I've asked her every question I can think of about was it your mother was it your father um, you know and she, we can't work it out it was just in her that she fights and she wanted to fight. She's um, one of seven girls and she grew up in a, an environment where she was prejudiced because she was one of seven girls and then she saw her father murdered and they had no voice to, um, they know who did it but there's no way for them to bring that person to justice because she's only a female and, um, but she already had the fight before that so it, that wasn't even the answer. Um, but her, her leadership style is literally she'll throw herself into situations where she has no skills. So, for example, she'll write um, five-year legal applications to allow her centre to run, you know, with zero skills. And I just would never attempt those sorts of things. But because she has to, there's no one else, and it has to be done for her to be able to continue to operate. So off she goes. And just watching the absolute humility 
that she operates in um, and the pure guts to make a difference, you know, that passion that burns. Whereas, you know, I might be tempted, you know, if somebody says no to me, I'll keep trying. They say no two or three times and, you know, I'll give up. <laughs> but, yeah, just watching her has been a real um, – is teaching me a lot about my own pride um, and my own insecurities about, well, if I'm going to step out, I need to know where I'm going and I need to have everything sorted, you know, all the dots in place and, yeah. That's an amazing combination she has of humility and courage. Mm. Uh, as you, you just talked about, you know, your own pride, and I thought, well, hang on, why, why is that a problem? Because pride might drive you, but Anita, you're saying, has that, that combination of incredible humility and incredible courage and drive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So learning a lot from her. Very, very different to me, but yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Mm. Uh, do you have any thoughts or dreams about bringing her to Australia to teach more people here? Or would you like to have her stay there and, and do what she's doing? Yeah, she'd be wasted here. What do we? <laughs> we've got everything already. We're already too arrogant. <laughs> um, no, she, she has been to Australia a couple of times. She's actually won international awards from the UN um, because of the model of community development and empowerment that they do. It's, it, she was, they've won the ethical um, a leadership award. So that's from the UN. It's, it's a really big deal. Uh, but, yeah, I honestly believe that she would be wasted here. People wouldn't listen. They would treat her as just another, oh, isn't she nice? She's done very well. But we have no way of applying. We don't have the need. We don't have the necessity. We're not driven by absolute desperation um, that, like they are over there. So, yeah, they need her more. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Let's come back to your work with the university and adult education. Mm. Adult education in Australia and internationally has changed over the recent years. What what trends are you noticing and what do you find works in adult education? Yeah, okay, so CQU, my the university I work for, and we're a little bit different to this what's called the Sandstone University, so that the top eight universities in Australia that are very academic and very, um, you know, almost elitist in the way that they uh, guard knowledge. We believe in being connected to the ground, um, so we're almost the opposite in some ways. Um, so one of the outcomes of that is that we offer a lot of distance education. So in my footprint in Cairns, so that doesn't, that includes two groups of people. The people who are connected to us via distance, they're enrolled not face-to-face, -face, so I may never meet them in person, um, but they are part of my cohort. And then I have my face-to-face -face group. And the main difference I notice between those two is the distance um, students are usually older people, so mums returning, you know, kids are just young, they're aware that they're going to be at school and they need to find a profession, or the plumber who realises that his hands aren't going to hold up and he's not able to deal with the mess and the muck all his life, so he's going to go into secondary teaching. So people who've already done life and they come with an incredible amount of resilience and skills, they don't know that they do. They question themselves continuously because they see academia out of their league, but they have a go. So they are the first group. So they are incredibly self-reliant. Um, uh, they reach out when they need to, but they're generally self-sufficient and just need that really loose support of someone at the end of the phone if things get desperate. Then I have the other group of people. So then my face-to-face -face are just people who either by personality like someone telling them what to do or that relational person um, or a lot of them are the school leavers who love me just to stand there and lecture them and give me the give them their homework and you know they like to be treated like children in a lot of ways um, yeah so 
to answer your actual question, how is education changing in Australia? I think increasingly uh, we're being given more choice. We're being uh, open pathways of accessing education that suits us so that you don't have to bow to the system anymore. If you want to do something, there are multiple ways you can get that information and that piece of paper um, over a longer period of time, using the internet, um, yeah, whatever suits you. So we're able to actually adjust and, and yeah, it's allowed a lot more people access into education or into the academic world that previously the doors were shut on. That's wonderful. So not you see neither model or anything in between is going away, but the the diversity is going to continue and enable more people to be educated. Yeah, that's great. Mm. Uh, we've heard a lot about Anita, uh, and I imagine that she's right up there in terms of the best leaders that you know and have met. But can you tell us about another leader that you admire and have looked looked up to over the years? Um, yeah, I've actually there's so many, um, but personally. Uh, one gentleman who's had a lot of impact on my life um, is probably more your traditional leader. He's quite autocratic. Um, he is, you know, stands out the front, and uh, he was a part. He is a pastor, and he is also a dentist. So he has he's an unusual kind of mix of per, um, people. I suppose that could be helpful. You know, with your hands in someone's mouth, they've got to listen. They, they can't talk. That's true. It's absolutely <laughs> true. <laughs> um, yeah. So the reason I would put him as a leader is for two reasons. One, um, obviously as a pastor of a church, we sat under his teaching, my family and I. He was very uh, inspirational from a, um, you know, our spiritual growth side, uh, but more so the reason why he is dear to me or why he's kind of one of the first people that I think of was the fact that he was, um, I felt he saw me and he knew what I needed and he was there at key moments because of um, the fact that he was always approachable. So, for example, I didn't actually like the way he preached. <laughs> I'm a lineal thinker, so similar to the way that you preach, Jeff, that very structured way. Um, Chaz would throw out this idea and then he would go somewhere over here and then, you know, I often couldn't make the connections and I would, you know, but I always felt free to go up to him afterwards. And he, he got into the habit, actually, of asking me, so what do you think about that one? And I would I would go to tell him and just dialogue with him. There was no, he was never threatened that I was questioning his authority or he was completely, didn't need my approval in any way, shape or form. Um, having said that, uh, he assisted me at a, a time in my life when I was going through an incredibly difficult situation. Um, yeah, and I got to crisis point and I was able to just literally drive to his office, walk in without an appointment and say, um, I need to tell you some stuff. I need to tell you what's going on in my life. And uh, it wasn't even what he said because he said he was able to just help me so much. It was more around the fact of he sat there and said, I wondered when you would come. So he'd been watching from afar, me literally destroying my life, um, didn't say anything, didn't interfere. But when I was ready, he allowed me access to come and, um, you know, we, that relationship now has been ongoing and um, what it would be almost 20 years later, we still, my husband and I still check in with him regularly and tell him our plans and he still does the fatherly thing of, you know, oh, wow, that's, uh, that's great that you're going in that direction or, oh my gosh, are you still on that? <laughs> you know, and so, yeah, we just trust him and it's, it's about, again, about relationship, you know, for, for me. You mentioned your family and, and your husband. Um, with this 
uh, devotion that you have to university and to travelling overseas uh, and all the work that you've done, uh, what has that meant in terms of your family life? How are you able to still be a mum and a, and a wife and a lecturer and a campus coordinator and an international researcher? How do, how do those things fit together? Yeah. Um, seasons. <laughs> that's a dumb answer, really, but that's how it's worked. Um, there's been times where I have been too busy um, far too busy and the work-life balance has not been there. There's also been times where I've forced myself to stop and take a break and reflect. Um, yeah, and I guess to having a husband who is the opposite to me in so many ways and yet so complementary. Um, I grew up in a very traditional household, so my father was the head of the house, like that was his role, and my mother was the, you know, the stay-at-home mum who... You know, your father said, wait till your father gets home, you know, all that sort of kind of was what I, you know, you automatically kind of expect what you think your family was like is what your new family is going to be like. And yet um, we worked out very quickly in our relationship that um, it was going to be my passions and my dreams that were going to drag our family all over the world. And rather than feeling threatened by that or um, have an issue with that, my husband is very supportive and he... He calls himself an enabler and he recognised very early that that was his role in our our marriage. So he has always supported me. Um, fortunately, he likes cooking and he likes kids. <laughs> so, yeah, but it has definitely been a battle and we look at it sometimes like a pendulum. We'll swing far too, one, you know, far, too far one way and then it's about noticing that those corrections need to happen to bring the pendulum back into line again. Um, yeah, we looked at each other at the end of last year and went, yeah, that wasn't good. <laughs> so we put a through few, you know, and again, it's about organisation and about communication. So we sat at the beginning of the year and made a diary and went, right, these are the busy seasons. So therefore, in this season, we will need to do this. Yeah, so it's about being purposeful for us. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Mothers and fathers are leaders of their own households, um, not always in the classic leadership style but they influence their children and their families mm. what have you learnt about yourself as a mother um, that you know from before you were a mother you thought you would be this way what, what have you learned that's different oh absolutely so we actually took a long time to have children and again i'm the actually i'm the eldest of six jeff so again that was my model growing up you know i wanted nine kids that was my dream <laughs> How I'd actually, but I'd always wanted to travel overseas and be, um, a, be an academic, so I wasn't sure. How, I still don't know how I was putting that together when I was six. But anyway, that was what I wanted to do. And then I had my first son and um, tried to stay at home and just about went crazy. And so ended up going back to study purely out of absolute boredom. So um, I guess I had in my mind this stereotype view of what motherhood would look like and that it was supposed to be all satisfying and this child would be my world. And then an incredible amount of guilt about that not being true for me, um, not just coming from me personally, but also from my sphere where, you know, my sisters are all, three of them are homeschooling mothers because they love their kids so much, you know, and um, the women in my mother's groups were the bake their own bread sew their own clothes and here's me leaving my three-year-old to go on an international travel for a month you know and they were openly quite critical to be honest um, which only contributed to my guilt so I tried even harder to be the perfect mother um, but it was about being honest with myself and being honest um, and also listening to my husband who was saying why can't I bake the bread he literally does he bakes bread 
Um, why can't I do the cooking? What, what, why am I diminished? And trying to bring some balance and truth back into our context. It's not to say that that's, they were wrong, but it didn't work for us. And it's about being honest with and being okay with that we didn't fit the stereotype and that's okay. That's a wonderful thing to figure out about yourself. Hard with the pain that comes attached to the figuring out process, yes. but to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. Tell us about when you're going to sleep at night and you're reflecting on your day, what constitutes a good day as a leader? So what really satisfies me is going to lying in bed and reflecting on conversations I've had during the day where we may not have figured out the answer to a problem, but we've started to ask the questions. We've started to challenge the barriers. We've identified that it's not working and that wow, we could do this and we could do that and we could, you know, we need to explore this and why are we okay with this happening? You know, why is it okay that, you know, disabled women don't get this opportunity? Why can't the system of Nepal or the Indigenous system answer this, you know, allow access for this area? So it's about um, having had conversations where people are asking questions uh, and there's hope that change will come because we bothered to ask them yeah sounds like a good day if someone wants to connect with you or your work how could they do that yeah the best way is by email um, that's probably consistent all around the world and uh, so my email address is m.ham h-a-m at cqu.edu.au thank you and can you tell us a little bit more about the organization in nepal what's the name of the organization is that online yeah it is online um it's called seven women uh there's a couple of different ways that you can access so they sell products online it's an online store so you can order that and to be delivered to your home that the women make um so that's one way the second way is if you are ever in nepal they do cooking schools and they also if you're connected with a university particularly uh, you get your university to contact seven women because they do study tours and they're un i've done a lot of study tours and they're unlike anything you've ever done before it's academic in that you're given articles to read and then you go and assess whether that's true on the ground so it's really really well organized so yeah. Sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Thank you so much for your time today, Miriam, and your honesty. Uh, it's been so great to get to know you a little bit better and learn from you, and I know it'll be valuable for everyone who listens. So thank you. You're welcome. Well, I love that interview with Miriam. I love her clarity that she has about her own leadership journey and the, the things that she's reflected on from her earlier life, how she's changed and grown over the years as a leader and how she brings that in, in every context at the university and overseas in Nepal. And I love uh, the, the admiration that she has and what she's learning from different types of leaders all over the world and that story and the things that she said about Anita in Nepal are just fantastic. So I hope it encouraged you and I hope it has helped shape and sharpen your leadership too. Keep an eye out for future episodes of the Far North Leadership Podcast. If you subscribe on your favourite podcasting app, they'll pop up whenever a new one is released. And if you find this helpful or interesting, please pass it on to a friend or a colleague and maybe you'd even like to leave us a review on your podcasting app. I'll be back soon with another episode of the Far North Leadership Podcast.